Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 85, with the title, Mirrors and Doorways. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Nonir Amasitia. Nonir describes themselves as the bottom half of a trench coat double act, and I can't wait to find out what that means. When I asked Nonir to describe their superpower, they said, juggling, they are, they are able to keep a ridiculous number of balls in the air. And I, have a, I have it on good authority that's more than 10, so definitely a ridiculous amount. Hello, Nonir. Welcome to the show. Joanne, thank you so much for having me today. Absolute pleasure. And I've you've intrigued me. And I really can't wait to find out some of the, uh, um, well, what is the trench coat double act? So I can't wait to find out about that. So mirrors and doorways, what's that about? Yeah, um, I, as part of the trench coat double act, um, I write, I co-write under the author name O.E. Tierman. And we write a book series that is a hopeful queer dystopian. And one of our goals with the series is mirrors to show people who aren't generally represented in fiction that they can exist in fun, interesting fiction stories that don't center around a marginalized identity as their main plot point um because as queer mentally ill people we don't see ourselves in fiction a lot in stories that aren't you know coming out stories or oh my gosh overcoming depression stories or or things of that nature so we really wanted to provide that mirror for marginalized folks to see themselves in in see themselves in their communities in new and different lights and along those lines is the doorways of we wanted to open the door to conversation and open the door to non-marginalized people to see what it's like to live with a marginalized identity and also to open those doors to conversations of how can we make the, the world a better place and doing all of that through fiction and through discussions like these. Fabulous, because, I mean, as a queer person myself, there's a lot of queer joy, and we often we get associated with queer negativity, you know, rather than the euphoria of an empowerment we feel as well, don't we? Yeah, and, I mean, I have been kind of following queer publishing for quite a while. And we're starting to get away from coming out stories and tragic stories, but there's still this overwhelming number of when people are, when queer people are represented in books, 
it's a book about their queerness and not about them being a person experiencing things and their queerness is just part of that and so we wanted to write stories where that was the case where Aiden our main character is a gay trans man um, inspired by some of my own experiences and um, that's a very important part of his identity and part of the story does revolve around him transitioning and dealing with people who don't respect him etc but that's not the main storyline the main storyline is he's leading this group of misfits to try and bring democracy back to a corporate owned America and it, it just it was really important to both Olivia my co-writer and I that we present these people as real people and they're going on adventures and they're finding love and they're making found family and the fact that they're queer or have various neurodivergencies is an important part of who they are, but it's not the entirety of who they are. Mm. I've seen that. I've observed that in, in, in the media. When I talk about the media, I mean films, TV, Netflix. Mm -hmm. I think it was, I was watching Alice in Borderlands. There was a, if you've seen that, it's a bit, it's a bit kind of, was it Korean kind of, um, death games for a better way of describing it and one of the characters in that um, just so happened to be a, a queer trans woman but you, you didn't realise that until she needed to tell you that but it wasn't her reason for existing it was yeah. just it added an extra dimension to her to and depth to her character as a by the way yeah and, it, and, I, and I thought wow of course you are of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? And it was amazing. And, I, and I, my wife and I have just finished watching uh, a, a short series on Netflix called Glamorous. Um, it's all about the beauty industry. And one of the characters there, Marco, yes, it is centered around queerness because all, all the main characters are queer in a beauty industry. So it's, it's, you know, being queer is, is part of that culture. But in the last 30 seconds of, the, of episode 10, the main character, Marco, you see him or her outside of a clinic with transgender services under the under the title, and that that was signifying the journey this person went on as a as a a femme um, identifying, if you like, queer man to mm -hmm. to go through that journey of discovery to say I now understand who I am. I am trans, and I want to do something about this. And I was my wife and I were in tears at this point here. Because of yeah. this, this, this evolution of character where trans became this wonderful evolution of this character, and we thought, "Wow, that is so powerful!" And you, and you look back at the episode, and you think, "Of course they are, of course they are," but they didn't realize they didn't admit it themselves. I think what, what what you're saying there about someone's transness, someone's queerness, it enriches their character rather than being the whole purpose of their character. And I think we've we've seen that too much. You know, you you look at. Um, Laverne Cox and her disclosure documentary on uh, on Netflix around how queer people, trans people, have been portrayed in the media for years. We're always the butt of the joke. We're always the the yeah. exception. We're always the baddie. Always the the, the 
the person corrupting men or whatever it may be, however you describe it. And I think what you're saying there is, yeah, it's extremely important for the evolution of, of, of queer culture to be seen as a person first and their queerness is just part of their identity. It is. I mean, I'm a little biased because I'm a fiction writer, obviously, but I firmly believe that change begins in media. And whether that's storytelling or movies or video games or music, what whatever media you prefer, the more representation and the more openness that we can provide in our media, yeah. the easier it is to affect real change in real life. Because, A, you've empowered the people who need to see themselves. And B, you've given the other people things to think about of, oh, hey, maybe that trans lady I saw on the street isn't there just to corrupt men like the media has portrayed. Maybe she's, you know, just living her life like a normal human being. And maybe she deserves rights like everybody else. And it's, I know, mind-blowing, right? Um. Yeah, so we, we even had a trans Barbie, didn't we? And it was the trans the, Barbie was not. It was her transness was not centered on. It wasn't even remarked upon. It was nope, only people. Who, yeah, it was only if you had a bit of a trans radar sort of tuned in. You go, yeah, wow, well, fair play. You snuck her in there without making a big deal of it. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. I, the Barbie movie did a lot of that. Like, yeah, a plus movie. Not gonna lie. Um, but yeah, just, just showing marginalized people existing in media is so incredibly important. And I feel like it gets, I don't want to say ignored, but kind of downplayed a lot. Um, and I know yeah. that traditional publishing is still kind of trying to find its place with that, um, because there's a lot of pushback of, you know, if we have diverse characters, especially as a protagonist, then we're going to turn off this other group of people who, for some reason, don't want to read about people other than themselves. Which I could go on a rant about how stupid that is for quite some time. But, like, yeah, I just... My train of thought just completely derailed. Sorry. Yeah. No. Well, the media that were well, the movies, the that kind of entertainment media, they, they they've had, they've created these stereotypes over the years about what to define what good is and what bad is and what sinister is. All this, and you know, I, I always use James Bond as a, as a as a franchise. Yeah, it portrays the white guy, the British white guy, as the hero. Mm-hmm perfectly formed fit attractive all these kind of things and the baddie it often has a foreign accent or a non-british accent often has a, a, a disability a facial disfigurement or something strange about them exploding eye or big 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 golden teeth or something so we're, we're, we're trying to demonize people based on their physical characteristics and and queer people outside of some marvel and some other forward-thinking um franchises I've always tended to be portrayed as the outliers, as the people who are not the good guys. And I think we've got we've got to start showing 
queer people in their own space for queer people, uh, exemplifying that hey, we're just we're just we're heroes as well. We are heroes. Yeah, I mean, and we deserve to be heroes. I think everybody deserves to be a hero of their own story, regardless of identity or attraction or disability status or race or religion or anything. Everybody deserves the dignity of being the hero of their own story. Yeah, amen, amen, definitely for sure. Um, I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it? You can't be what you can't see. So if you don't see the representation... I mean, we're going to talk a bit in a minute, in a minute about mental health uh, dysphoria, presumably feeling lost, feeling unseen, those sort of things. So it's really, really important to amplify and to show people an aspiration, uh, a possibility, a belief that they can succeed, isn't it? It is. And, and just acknowledging that people exist in all shapes and sizes and differences um because again the media tends towards very specific storytelling tropes and very specific coding for villains um mm. oftentimes it's queer coding and jewish coding and as a queer person of jewish descent i'm just like why i mean don't get me wrong being a villain can be empowering in certain circumstances but when that's all you see it's really hard not to internalize that message of well society's always going to see me as a bad guy so what's the point and I hope that our books as O.E. Tierman can provide at least a slightly different well not slightly a radically different <laughs> point of view of no you're you're okay you're fine because our our main group of characters are incredibly diverse between physical ability and mental illnesses and gender identities and racial identities, ethnic identities. Like we have so many different types of characters all in this organization of the good guys. What sort of genre do you write about? Is it, is it you say it's, it's, it's fiction? Is it modern romance, sci-fi? Uh, well, this this particular series is a hopeful queer dystopian. Um, it's set 150, 200 years ish in the future, um, and America has been taken over by seven corporations that now run everything. Um, I often have to joke that we didn't intend this to be prophetic because uh, we started writing in like 2015, 2016 as a response Google, to Musk and his, and his cohort. Yeah. Uh, Oracle, Ellison, those kind of things. Yeah, we've, we, we now have some pretty powerful organizations running running the world almost. Yeah. So um, we have to joke that we we promise we didn't write this expecting this to happen. <laughs> um, but the the series follows this group of outcasts and this found family that are fighting to bring democracy and general human decency back, and fighting to make the world a better place. 
see what I'm curious now in this dystopian future. Tell me this is true, that straight people have to start coming out now. Is, is this really good if this dystopian future, the straight people had to come out and, and uh, cis I, people I, had to come out? <laughs> uh, we, we didn't want to get too far away from reality. So uh, depending on which corporation area you're in kind of depends on the moral or not depends on creates the morals and social attitudes so some corporations don't care at all and some are very cishet normative enforcing very prescriptive yeah yeah Um, because like we did want to express the reality that queer people are currently living um, yeah. We just didn't want it to be the hopeless version of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, is it is it as bad as you see in the media from from you know the UK side? Looking in at the US, is is queer rights, queer oppression, trans rights? I mean, we we see many states winding back protection that even obviously Road versus Wade abortion rights, and but don't say gay. Is it is it really that that bad? I mean. As a, it as a on where you're at in the states, but yeah, it's honestly freaking terrifying. If I think about it too much, um, yeah. I yeah, sorry, I for the, for the listeners, I, we have our cameras on, so I can see your expression. So yeah, I can see that was a, a real intake of breath there, and a yeah, yeah. okay. It's one of those things that I both have to be aware of because I'm in the community and all of my friends are, but also have to ignore for my own mental health. And it's a really, really weird line to walk. Yeah. We see a bit of it was emerging in in the UK. We're seeing a real anti-trans rhetoric, a a trans-critical, trans-hostile movement developing it's a minority with a loud voice well-funded well-organized with the ear of politicians and it's it's worrying that trans people mainly trans people mainly trans women um are being used as political pawns as footballs as as a wedge issues mm-hmm. to to gain votes and it, it's 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 frightening and that uh you know you you watch or read handmaid's tale and you suddenly realize that Yes, all of a sudden you could wake up in the morning and someone can suddenly nullify your existence, mm-hmm. your rights, your marriage, your your property ownership. And you think, you see it as a, as a you know, you talk about your, your your dystopian view of the world. Um, When one of your previous presents was in place, you, you suddenly believe that The Handmaid's Tale could be a reality. And if this person is re-elected, it could still be a reality, couldn't it? Even if he's not, it could still be a reality. Yeah. Just based on the way that the conservative American contingent thinks. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically with the books, we, we took all of our own personal fear as queer folk who are were born female or assigned female at birth. Um, 
we took all of that fear and put it into the books and said, okay, this is where we're at. How can we make ourselves feel better? How can we change this fictional world to be better and less terrifying for people who are outside of the quote unquote norm? And then maybe if we put it in fiction, we can kind of help nudge the real world in that direction as well. Is, is kind of the hope because yeah the world we're living in is terrifying if you are not a straight cisgender white guy with quite a bit of money yeah i mean for my own mental health here yeah. i think one of the problems i find is that and i don't want to use the, the word or the phrase trans community meaning that we, we are organized into some sort of power structure you know we don't the trans communities, if you like, are a group of people trying to get on with their lives, or the queer communities. Um, we are our, sometimes our own worst enemy. We reshare and, and, and amplify hate sometimes by going, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you seen... I go onto Facebook, I see more anti-trans rhetoric from trans people sharing the anti-trans rhetoric than I do if I if I just turned on the news. And I think we, we sometimes we've got to be careful around our own mental health. We yeah. get a bit obsessed with 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 the, with the danger, and we, we keep wanting to be like me. Right? Danger, 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 and tell everybody about it. It's that weird line of we have to be aware, and so we want to make sure that everyone we know and love is aware. But also, we can't just keep focusing on the danger and the terror, because that's not good for any of us and the queer community communities in general have generally higher incidences of depression and anxiety and varying other mental illnesses, disorders, neurodivergencies. And just flooding social media and our discussions with, oh my god, did you hear so-and-so is now on the anti-gay train and this is what they said and this is what we have to rally against. Like, I understand where it comes from. We're trying to protect each other, but it doesn't serve us. It just kind of keeps us stuck in that reactive terror loop. And I'm not really sure how to get out of it, but I think that we need to work on as a whole. And actually this isn't just queer folk, but as a whole, marginalized communities, we need to find work on finding that balance between keeping each other informed and safe and also celebrating each other and celebrating the fact that we exist and our lives are all sorts of varied and beautiful, even when it's hard. Yeah, but my kind of take on it, I suppose, is I just sing my own song, play my own tune to quote that song, which uh, I think Paloma Faith did a version. You know, I, I keep amplifying who I am. I think if, if I was to engage in those negative conversations, there's no winner. There's no, nothing happens. You, you talk about being a person with a Jewish uh, history and background. It's what's going on in the Middle East is completely abhorrent to everybody. But it doesn't help to get into a discussion about who's right or wrong. I, I don't wanna I don't wanna care if you've got anti trans viewpoints or you want to debate the the supremacy of sex and biology over identity. I, I don't care if you want to have that conversation. 
I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. I can be the best me, have the best conversations about me, exemplify what I can do as a person. And then if you want to go and do that in your, in your little space, that's fine. I don't need to engage with you. And I think the more I attenuate and turn the volume down on this other stuff, makes my life easier, makes my life more, more hassle-free. And But not everyone's... That, I mean, I, I, that's a privilege. I, I can do that. I'm mm-hmm. quite robust. I have I have good support network around me. But what, what we were saying before we went online and, and, and live was that you mentioned just now about mental health concerns around people in the queer community, this, mm-hmm. whether it's dysphoria, whether it's the feeling of being under-attacked, erased, marginalized even further. So how can we, or you through your media, through your books, through your writing, how can we create spaces for people to, to, to know they're loved, for want of a better way of putting it? I risk of sounding like a broken record. Representation helps a lot, um, especially when we're talking about mental health, mental illness and neurodivergency. There is still such an incredible stigma around it around asking for help around having a diagnosis of anything and showing characters struggling with anxiety and depression and dysphoria and i feel like we have more that i'm just not remembering but showing that and showing that they're still human they're still okay it's not again it's not the entirety of their identity and it's okay that they ask for help and there are people around them who love them and who care for them and will help them through a depressive episode or an anxiety attack and in my own life being in the writing community has actually been incredibly helpful for that because writers also tend to be neurodivergent in various ways um and that's one of the the ways that olivia and i really connected both as friends and co-writers because we both have struggles with anxiety and depression and um, i have dysphoria and she has um other biological and mental illnesses it, it, not illnesses issues that make her anxiety like really really bad and so just kind of bonding of society thinks we're broken but we're not and discussing that and creating those safe spaces both for us as individuals and for our readers I think that that's kind of where we need to start. And I think when we're talking about acceptance of mental health issues, we're still just starting. Uh, Partially because psychology itself is a relatively young field, all things considered. Um, And partially because a lot of it is still influenced by Nazism and various other bigoted thoughts that a lot of people don't recognize are so ingrained in the studies um so just starting with 
representation and acceptance and saying, hey, we exist and we're not all going to turn out to be serial killers. Um, well, we, we know the stats. There are more cis <laughs> serial killers than there'll ever be Chris. Even, even like most most neurodivergent people like, like queer people, we just want to survive. We just want to get by. Um, most of the time, like in America, when we're talking about mass shootings and things, they're cishet white guys, generally, who have no history of mental illness. But the media will almost always spin it somehow to point to mental illness because of that stigma. Well, they need to. They need to label them as as divergent in some way. Otherwise, if they're a normal person, how can a normal person be rationalized to do this heinous act? So they have to assign a label to them to take them out of the normal box. Say, well, look, they weren't normal. It's okay. Normal people are okay. This person has a mental health. This person has a a history of this. He's neurodivergent, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It automatically harms the neurodivergent community. Yeah. And also sweeps under the rug that quote unquote normal people are just as messed up as anybody else. Do, do you think, as uh, yeah, as queer people ourselves, once you've kind of owned that label, that identity, it's very much it's very easy to own other things about yourself. You know, I, I don't need to hide my. I don't know. I'm not. I wouldn't class myself as neurodivergent, but I have uh, obsessive behaviors around certain things, and I have disinterest, heavy disinterest in other things. So I can, mm-hmm. I can very be very polarized. It doesn't make it doesn't make me neurodivergent necessarily. It just makes me try to understand. But I, I can now admit to myself about a whole load of things that maybe I try to mask or cover in, in my in my old life, if you want to call it that way. Now I just go. It's almost like this this this, this channel is supposed to be safe for children. And non explicit, but you know, you, the fuck it switch hits, doesn't it? And sometimes you just go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, yeah, I, I don't need to, I don't need to hold that baggage in anymore. Yeah. I think once you realize that it, some part of you is marginalized, the other marginalized parts of you are just like, hey, I'm here too. And <laughs> as, at some point, it's just like, well, society already hates me for that thing, so I might as well embrace this other thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, my lived experience is when I announced to the world my transiness and told my mum and other people, it was kind of, you know, if you think, I, I, if I could share that secret that I've held with me for 40, 52 years of my life at the time, I could share any. I, I don't need to have a secret anymore. There's, not, there's nothing more scary. I mean, you try and blackmail me. Well, yeah, well, what have you got on me that I'm, I'm, I'm worried about? You know, it's kind of so. Yeah, um, I, I think it's. I think it's important. One thing you, you, you said you mentioned earlier was society sees us as broken in some way, whether we're neurodivergent, queer, and the, the issue with that is that I internalize that. We internalize that. Oh, for sure. We, we we're told we're broken, therefore we are, therefore we believe, and sometimes that's that's the root cause of a lot of dysphoria yeah i'm you must conform to a social construct you must conform to the norms of society you don't look trap woman enough you don't look man enough and 
WTF, what does non-binary enough mean? You know, kind of, um, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, you look, you look absolutely fabulous as and non-binary enough to me on the camera. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's that's one of the struggles that I have, too, is just, like, to an, a quote-unquote normal, a cis-het person, I come across as very femme-presenting because I haven't done any sort of, like, active masculinization. Also, side note, the fact that we associate non-binary with masculine appearance is really dumb. Um, but there's, there's still that like masculine as default ergo trying to get more looking masculine ish means you're trying to be more central. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So but, and, and androgyny is inherently more masculine, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, small bum. No breasts, very straight looking, cropped hair, whatever. It's a generally very masculine. So again, generally super thin. Yes. Um, like if you just Google androgynous or something along those lines, you'll come up with a bunch of really skinny, really white people. And as someone who is not very skinny and has a large chest, People don't look at me and think, oh, you can be androgynous. But I am non-binary. I don't identify with being male or female. Some days I'm more one, some days I'm more another. And there's not a good way to present that in current society because literally everything is gendered in a really stupid way. Like, Yeah, we're even telling bits of bits of porcelain that they that they have yeah, toilets are gendered in some way. So it's just yeah, a toilet. Yeah. It's just trying to gender. And like clothing. Like I've started wearing quote unquote men's jeans because they're so much easier to fit. Because women's fashion is so insanely ridiculous. Um but again, they're just clothes. There's no need to label them. You just want the pockets, don't you? That's what it is. You want deep pockets. I want pockets. I don't want to have to try on 20 different pairs of jeans that are supposedly the same size to find one that fits. But one thing I like about women's jeans is the is the lycra and the stretch. You know, you get a nice... I mean, I know men's jeans can have lycra and stretch as well, but I, I tend to find that they, they kind of they fit a little bit better. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, it's definitely the well, pockets. switch jeans. It's fine. We can switch jeans. <laughs> but it's definitely the pockets. I miss pockets. I do miss pockets. Again, yeah. women's fashion, WTF. Why not? I know. I, know. I, I often wear dresses. I got one on today that has pockets in it. You know, I'm out at a function or something. And I put my hand in my pocket and pull out a tissue or something. And everyone around me goes, oh, you got pockets in your dress. Oh, fantastic. It's like everyone got pockets in there. Yeah. I just want someone to put my lippy and my, my, my tissues <laughs> I don't want to have to carry a bag. No. Like, I stuff everything in my bra. Yeah, that's, that's the other problem. You've got yes. your mobile phone in there. You've got your room key. Thing You've without got your having a big chest is that I've got built-in pockets. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, 
I don't know. The, the way that society just genders things in general makes no sense to me. And it never has, even before I recognized that I was non-binary and non-binary was even a thing or could be. Like, even as a kid, I was a very sheltered kid. And I wasn't even exposed to the concept of queerness until high school, until I was in my teens. Um, but even as a kid, I knew I didn't fit in as a girl or a boy. I was a very tomboy-y girl or a very girly boy. And I didn't have words to express that. And I think that that's a really important part of where we're at as a society now is we're starting, we're starting to have words. And I think it's important that we allow kids access to those words and those concepts because not to sound over dramatic, but it could literally save their lives to be able to say, I'm not the only one who feels this way. There's a whole term for people who feel this way. And that's one of the things that really irritates me about the whole, we can't expose kids to trans people or to queer people rhetoric. Like, again, we're all just trying to live our lives. We're not trying to quote unquote convert anybody or anything like we're just trying to tell kids that, hey, we exist. And maybe you're one of us and maybe you're not. But if they grow up knowing that we exist, they're more likely to respect us and to respect our communities and to be more open-minded. And Or, it is another thought, or see a role model and and see themselves represented in somebody mm-hmm. and realize what's going on in their head isn't broken. They are not broken. They are real. They are valid. And that's that's what straight people are worried about because they're probably internalizing their own their own feelings and and you know that's generalization. But yeah, there are many people out there that are repressing their own thoughts and sexuality and and identity. Yeah, and and, and a lot of realize that. A lot of that is internalized from society and, and people don't really realize how much we internalize from those external sources, from the media, from our parents, mm. from our education, and how dangerous and debilitating that can be to everybody, whether or not you are marginalized. Like... The fact that cishet white people are so afraid of the queer community. Partially because of all of those internalized fears of, if I'm queer, what happens if I'm queer? What happens if I'm not who I think I am? And to that I say, well then, jump on the train with us, friends. Because we all went through that at some point. And we're all still here. But there are some people out there that just like or love or feel the need to police people back into their lane or back into their box. You know, you, you see mm-hmm. it with driving a car. You get certain people who insist that you drive your car the way they, they want to have their car driven. And they'll try and police you or, or point it out to you or shout at you at a traffic light or something like that. So there are, there are people who have this real adherence to rules. I don't know if that's a neurodiversity or, or personality trait. 
but people want to put you back in their box and they have if you don't fit in their box they get really freaked out by it. i think that happens a lot of the time i think when you when you come out as queer with a with a i'm gonna say the word again a fucking attitude to the world well i don't need to live by your bs anymore it frightens people because how do, how do they put you in their box again you, uh, it's like you're, you're being yeah. too anarchic for them and and if they see other people doing that i feel like there's generally a piece of them that's going well why am i not doing that why am i still stuck in this box and mm. there's that resentment of they're living their lives authentically why am i not living my life authentically and society doesn't make it easy for anyone to live authentically regardless of identity or anything because it's it's all very conformist for everybody and I don't think that people who aren't marginalized realize how much harming marginalized communities also harms them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's 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 repressing people, which means you're only one step away from being repressed yourself for something. Yeah. And it, it's it's policing you in, into your lane, into your box if you're if you've got poor mental health you've got financial difficulties you've got relationship difficulties it, it means that you can't you don't feel open to talk about that and share that which we, uh, we were talking about That's before we came on air about suicide about mental health around um feeling alone and not able to share that and i think what we end up doing is policing people in such a way that nobody's prepared to to open up and talk yeah which is a problem for everybody because Everybody has periods where you're depressed. Everybody has times when you're struggling financially or you just need someone to say, hey, it's okay, I see you. Like, I don't care who you are. Everybody has those moments. And not acknowledging that or making that seem like a weakness or brokenness or an otherwise bad thing harms everybody so you're 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 the bottom half of a trench coat double act and mm -hmm. you both yourself the bottom half and the top half olivia you're both awesome jugglers so i gonna how did you manage to learn how to juggle well two balls three balls to start with but how did you get the ridiculous number was that just constant practice or did you go to a club or something how did you learn to juggle uh well it's more metaphorical juggling ah. uh it's it's juggling projects and businesses and all of those things and so uh yeah a, lo a lot of it is just practice and a lot of it is passion of I'm I'm passionate about all of these things, so I'm going to do all of them at the same time. Ah, so that was me thinking it was actual balls in the air. So, uh, Not going to lie, I uh, wish I could I juggle wish. like three for thirty seconds. <laughs> I back in the early nineties, I mean, 
that sounds like a lifetime ago for many people. In fact, it was. My daughter's only 31, so back in the early 90s, she was about two or three. Um, I, I used to work late uh, in projects. I was in IT at the time, and uh, my manager at the time was a member of the Magic Circle. I don't know if you had the Magic Circle in the States. It's mm-hmm. a magician's club, basically. And uh, he he used to have a, some juggling balls in his desk, and he used to sit, sit there in the evenings while we're waiting for servers to reboot and things like this. And he, was, he always got his balls out and jugs around, and, and he, he taught me how to juggle. And I could, I could do three balls for about 30 or 40 seconds. And I, I think the golden rule is it's not about the throwing. It's all around the catching. So mm-hmm. as, long as, you can, as long as you can catch it, you can throw it wherever you like. As long as you, it's about the catching and, and the rhythm. And so I got three quite successfully. And I've still got some juggling bean bags in my in my desk. I keep having a go, but I've lost I've lost the technique. I, need to, I think I need to have a, a weekend of getting back into it. i got the theory. I just need to practice yeah, I think always those skills. Everything. Yeah. It's about theory, but putting the theory into practice is a whole other ball game. Yeah, lots of lots of desire. I I I, I hyper focus on things. So if I can hyper focus on learn to juggle one weekend, I will. I won't stop until I can do four balls. I, I will be there. I mean, when I was fifteen, I think. Again, it's, I was fifteen. What in the late seventies, probably. That's a while ago, isn't it? And I, I learned to do the Rubik's Cube, and I wouldn't stop till I could get I could do the cube in, in less than a minute. And in those days, that was quite a good thing. I know people do it now with five or six seconds, and I really can't figure out how they do that. But yeah, 55 seconds was my record on the Rubik's Cube, and I really hyper-focused on this, obsessed with it. I bought all these books. I like to learn strings of letters, because I used to use U and D and R and L and combinations of those to be up or down or top of this. So I could I could memorize thirty or forty letters sequences, and I'd be able to flick those in, and I'd be able to adapt and pull out that combination almost like instant. Now I look at it and go, I can't remember a phone number these days. I I can't remember I can't remember um, a, a two factor authentication when it comes up with six digits, and I go key into Facebook. I, I can't remember that number without looking at it twice. Oh, I don't know if that's old age or <laughs> trauma. Say again, trauma. Trauma. Yeah, it. Tra- there have been several studies about trauma, even small traumas affecting memory. Yeah. And we as a world have gone through quite a few traumas lately with the pandemic mm. and everything. Uh, so as a society, no one I have talked to recently has a good memory anymore. I, I put it down to to the smartphone evolution. I don't need to know anyone's phone number anymore. In the past, I would know 15, 20 people's phone number. And then in the early days of mobile phones, I, I knew their home number, their mobile number, their office number for about 20 people. Um, now, I don't I don't even know. I know my wife's number. I know my number. I don't know my daughter's number. I don't know my son's number. Uh, I just I don't know my sister's number. Just hit the button. Yeah. I don't I don't calculate things. I didn't do mental arithmetic anymore. And uh, I've even stopped Googling things. I asked ChatGPT or or being AI now. I just I want it spoon fed to me. I don't even bother looking at search results sometimes. I just like I'm wondering about the you know, I I've even used ChatGPT image um techniques now and I took a picture of some food and said, Describe that for me and give me a recipe. And it, poof, there it was. So I you can go to restaurants now and get the recipe for food. It's like just like I wonder if I'm the photographs. That is, though. 
well, the ones I've used have been pretty good because we we went pumpkin picking the other week and we got some uh, spaghetti squashes, the other white ones. Oh, and when uh, we did a, it was a, a broccoli feta and cheddar, grated cheddar. You scoop out the, the, the squash, you mix it all together, and you put it down, and you put it in the oven, you grill it and bake it. And I, I put it in front of it, in front of me, and I took a photograph and said to ChatGPT image, please describe this. And he got it perfect. He got the recipe, he got the description, he got everything spot on, just from a, just for a photo. And it's like, yeah, so it's, it's scary accurate. Now, if you haven't tried it, I know we're completely off topic here, but if you haven't tried it, try a bit of ChatGPT4 image. Um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I was in a seminar the other week, and uh, someone put a slide up with some useful information on it. I took a picture of it, fed the slide into ChatGPT, and said, "Can you just summarize that and give me some give me some details?" And produce a little Google Sheet table with all the information on this slide with a with some takeaways on it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's so easy now to to use technology. Which I'm not saying it's dumbing us down. It's making us differently intelligent, I guess, is probably a better way of describing it. But I think I, I put that down to why my memory is, is not as good because my brain knows it doesn't need to remember anymore, so it doesn't bother. It does other things with that bit of, bit of brain power. Yeah. I'm not sure what those things are, but it, it must be doing different things. So Obviously, I've unlearned. podcasts and talking to people yes. about making yes. the world a better place. That, that's what it is. That's what it is. That's definitely what it is. So technology um, has automatically made the world a better place because it's allowed you the brain power to do this. It has, yeah. And what uh, what I will do, um, I'll, t- I'll share my secret with the listeners here, is I will feed the transcript of this through AI and it will generate show notes. It will generate everything else. So I haven't even got to sit here for four hours now rewriting show notes and producing summaries of the episode because uh, products out there will do it for me in a better than I ever can. And it allows me to just tweak it and, and, and adjust it to have my tone of voice and uh, I can turn it around in, in an hour what used to take me a half a day so yeah it's productivity from my perspective as a, as a solopreneur if you like it's it's amazing yeah absolutely fantastic but completely off topic but hey why not um I often wonder to myself let me sort of segue into this you know I always say people ask me how difficult it was it coming out and I always say the hardest person to come out to was myself. Uh, rationalizing who I am, what I am, how I am. How did you find that process of discovery? Because you said you, from an early age, you, you didn't fit into the boxes. You didn't know if you're, as I say, a femme man or a, 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 a butch woman or a feminine woman. Or where, where did you fit on that? So how did you kind of evolve that sense of self? I feel like it's kind of a constant process. Because yeah. um, I'm always finding new things about myself, um, just based on you know being in a situation that I haven't experienced before, or talking to someone new. Um, but I think, in general, a lot of it was honestly reading fan fiction, because <laughs> uh, that's how I got exposed to a lot of new ideas and identities and things that I hadn't been exposed to as a kid. And going back to all my earlier discussions about the importance of seeing ourselves in media, it 
it really gave me terminology and things to think about. And so, yeah, between, I think, reading fan fiction and being in theater and being able to kind of try on these personas and try on, okay, today I'm, I'm playing a male role. What, what does it feel like to embody that on the stage? And being able to take that off the stage and think about it and think about that process and how it feels in my body and how it felt in my brain, for lack of a better term, um, really kind of gave me that context and that ability to say, you know what, I don't think I fit on, on either end of the spectrum. I fit somewhere in the middle. That's... Yeah, that's quite powerful, isn't it? You, you, you're basically you're trying on an outfit, and you realise it doesn't quite fit. You know, it's a bit tight here, or a bit tight there, or restrictive. And you think, actually, no, that's not me. And then you, you put this one, and you go, actually, that's that's good. That feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, you, yeah. you know, don't you? Yeah, I went through probably six or seven different names before I found Nonier, and that felt right. Um, like my poor friends. <laughs> like, like I don't know what name you're using today. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, that does that have a history? Does that name mean something? Is it is it uh, from anywhere, or is it something you just it's something kind of made up? Um, yeah. it's inspired by the Icelandic and Norse mythology. Um, I like to say it means strength because Amicidia means friendship in Latin. Uh, so my my name then means strong friendship or strong friend because that's an important part of who I am being there for my friends building that community um, yeah so it's okay to like it's okay to make up your own name you could- yeah I'm I've got a good story about how I got my name I basically I basically pinched it off of my my first my first crush at school when I was thirteen. So uh, not only did I nick her first name, I nicked her surname as well because I I didn't like my surname, so I I, I stole both of her names, which is quite ironic for my wife knowing that I'm named after my first crush. But uh, that's a, that's a whole other story. But yeah, you know, we name our cats, we name our boats, we name our our dogs. But how often do we get to name ourselves? What name will we choose? And it's again, that's a a huge, it's a huge decision that people don't realize because, again, you have to try it on. You have to see if it fits. You have to imagine it being said out loud and will I respond to that? It's, it's a huge pressure, isn't it? Yeah, and, and being able to find a safe community and a safe group of friends to help you try on new names and new facades and um, new pronouns, new kinds mm. of ways to dress, just having that safe space to experiment is incredibly invaluable. So what you're trying to say there is escape the judgment of the BS of social constructs. That's what, that's what we're doing. We have to, we have to put, find a safe space where societal pressure and judgment is not allowed in. That's what we're doing. It, it's, and that's the sad thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We're repressing, being repressed indirectly often not directly, but indirectly by societal norms. Yeah. It gets really weird and wonky if you think about it too hard. 
It does. It does. Um, well, it, we've been going an hour. I can't believe that already. It's uh, yeah, we were chatting away for twenty minutes before that. Uh, no, no, it's been it's been fantastic. It's been I really love talking to you, and I wish we could carry on all day. And if if we lived a bit closer, rather than four thousand miles apart, whatever it is, I'm sure we'd pop around to the Starbucks for a coffee sometime, or or, no, or hang out more. Well, I mean, someday uh, we'll have to get Olivia on, so I'm sure we'll yeah. we'll chat with you again. Yes, that'd be Honestly. great. I'd, I'd love to have you both on the show at once and be my first double act, if you like. And I get to see both halves of the trench coat, the top and bottom. And uh, maybe we'll explore that more. You know, for those who, who can't imagine, imagine two children, one standing on the other person's shoulders with a trench coat and trying to sneak into the cinema, pretend they're, pretend they're 18. That's that's the image we, we want you to have there. So, not it. How do we get hold of you? What's your website? What's your books called? What's your publications? Yeah, the uh, books are called the Aces High Jokers Wild Series. Uh, you can find the books, all our social media, and how to get in touch with us on the website, which is O-E Kierman, T-E-A-R-A-M-N, sorry, M-A-N-N dot com. I can spell my own name. Um. Thanks, For those of you who want to hunt you down in other ways, so Nonir is N O N I R and Amicitia. How do we spell that for the A M I C I T I A? Fabulous. Um, you can also find my own solo published books, which are all queer, um, queer fantasy romance mostly, short stories, uh, under E S Argentum, A R G E N T U M. Because again, I have too many names. Um, but yeah, it, worst case scenario, find us on OE Tierman, send us a note and say, hey, I'm interested in talking to Nonir or finding their books, and we can shoot you the links. I'll make sure all of that's on your profile on the hosting platform for this podcast. So if anyone wants to look you up, just follow the links through to your profile and they will be there. I'll make sure they're all, all, all tagged and, and, and put that. So thank you so much. I can't believe that time has flown so quickly and I really appreciate you, you joining me today. It's been a fabulous conversation. It has. And hopefully. For having me. Yes. Oh, pleasure. And for you, the listeners, um, I, I thank you for tuning in and staying to the end. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm sure you'll all agree there's much to take inspiration from that, especially if you're in or out of the queer community, struggling to be heard, struggling to, with your own identity, struggling with your own poor mental health, whatever it may be, or just want someone to be able to listen to you. So there's a lot in there. Please do subscribe. Uh, I value your subscriptions uh, to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends and tell your colleagues and please share the links. I have a number of other exciting and passionate guests lined up over the next few weeks and months. I'm sure you'll be equally as inspired by them as well. Of course, if you're listening in and would like to be a guest yourself or have any comments or suggestions on how we can improve, if you think we can, then please send those to myself, joe.mockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. And it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.